A good haircut can be a game changer. I mean, everybody wants to look their best for those social media pics, right? So get yourself to Sport Clips at Sport Clips Haircuts. They hair do like no one else hair does. See what they did there? Not only is it the home of champion haircuts, but they've also made relaxing and unwinding the name of the game. Level up your haircut with the MVP haircut experience. It's a spa day for your follicles. Check this out. You get a seven pressure point massaging shampoo along with a perfectly steamed hot towel all while sports plays on the TV. Does it get any better than that? No. You can want it all and have it all at Sport Clips. It's a game changer. I know you have heard this before. Work smarter, not harder. Ford has heard it too. That's why the Ford F-150 truck helps you get the job done in the smartest way possible. I mean, the pro-access tailgate alone is a game changer. It improves access to the bed and cargo, which makes it easier to load in tight spaces. See? Smarter. It's also got a mobile power source in Pro Power on board, so you can power up to 7.2 kilowatts outside your F-150 truck. That is definitely working smarter. And imagine what you can do with that power at your next tailgate party. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. Let's do it. The much anticipated, always appreciated, Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan here. How's everybody doing? Susan's here in the background, you know. hey Did you hear about the cow who jumped over barbed wire? It was utter destruction. Thank you very much. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Is that even a joke? It's always Duff's delivery he says it all. <laughs> we got uh, John and Jamie back from True Timecast. Always looking for interesting subjects, but you guys said you're now writing your own fictional podcast based on the escaping Denver that we had here, talking about the Denver airport. And you guys are going to be writing about cannibals? But is it based on a true story or what? No, we're, we're avoiding the cannibalism for this one for our own self-mental health. But yeah, we heard about Escaping Denver on your show and binged that one. And that's a lot of fun. It's in the middle of its third season. So we wrote one called Left on Dead about a fictional crime and some ransom and hostages and a big twist at the end. So it was a good time to write. It's out now. Well, there you go. And it's called Left on Dead. Good. So this is this is kind of like an old school radio play. This is not true. No, it's just uh, a story that you guys came up with uh, a podcast, a serial, if you will, like yeah. we used to have back in the day. Well, that, that's amazing. And congratulations to you guys for that. Always love having you guys on as regular guests. And, and you, as usual, I know you guys have been busy and so am I. So I kind of vaguely remember what we're going to be talking about today, but I want you guys to explain it in full form and let's get into uh, this episode's serial killer psycho. And there's been quite a few of them that we've discussed over the years. So what do you got for us today? Yeah, there, there certainly have been. And this one may be the most prolific Canadian serial killer on record. Oh, wow. 
we'll, we'll get into the Canadian parts of that a little bit later. I may have to ask you for some pronunciations. <laughs> today we're going to talk about Robert William Picton. His family called him Willie. He was born in 1949 in British Columbia. That's where he grew up in an area called Port Coquitlam. Does that sound right? Okay. First of all, I just Googled the guy and oh my gosh, if there's he ever been, like it, doesn't he? if someone said draw a serial killer, this is what you might draw. And I'll give you a little bit of uh, insight. I lived in Vancouver for almost a year back in 94 and I used to visit my aunt and my cousins all the time and they lived in Port Coquitlam. So this is not some kind of a, a ghetto. It's a very nice suburban area. And this well, that was in the middle of his killing spree. So oh, wow. Maybe you saw some things on the news and, and didn't realize it at the time. This but. story could affect you and your family in a very bad way in a little bit. We'll get to that. <laughs> maybe <laughs> I cross paths with uh, Willie Picton. Who knows? Maybe you ate somebody. Who knows? We'll get, we'll get to that. <laughs> so is it, they moved there because there were 40 acres of swamp land available just outside of Port Coquitlam. Uh, his family bought that in the 60s for $18,000. And then when it was reassessed in 94, when you were around there, it was worth like $7.2 million. So oh, my gosh. Wow. Really good investment for their family. Uh, and they turned it into a pig farm because that's what they did. They were a series of pig farmers as a family. Willie, as he was referred to, Willie Picton had, he had a, a brother and a sister, David and Linda, and they all worked on the pig farm as well. And when they were kids, they would go to school after working on the farm and un got the unfortunate nickname as the Stinky Piggies because they still smelled like the pig farm when they got to school. And I think everybody that we talked to you about got bullied as a kid. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So they got bullied for being stinky. They weren't very social. And it wasn't long before Willie started seeing some violence in his life, of course, when he was just 18 years old, his little brother, David, was driving his red GMC truck around and he hit a teenager with his car. The teenager's name was Tim Barnett. He was just walking around and uh, up the side of a street and got hit by a car. And it was Willie's brother, David, that did it. David ran home and got his mom. And when she came to the scene, instead of calling for 911 or whatever the Canadian equivalent of 911. Same thing. Same thing. She decided that she was going to get rid of the evidence and she pushed him over the edge of a cliff into a body of water. The kid, 14 years old, was just laying on the side of the road and she just pushed him out of the way in hopes that they wouldn't find his body. Oh my gosh. Now, Willie knew about this and was in on it and that kind of set the stage for him thinking violence was okay. When police finally got involved in this situation, they said that the the little boy wouldn't have died from the from the car accident. Oh my like, gosh. He died of drowning. They never pinned it back on Willie's mom, but they did pin it on his brother. And all he really got was probation for a hit and run. Once again. Yeah. Letting them go through their fingers every single time. But yeah, he wouldn't have died from the car accident, but Willie got to see his mom essentially murder somebody to get out of trouble. So not a good start to his young adulthood. This has to be traumatic for for Willie, for the family, for everybody involved. It's crazy to me to think as myself, as a parent, if my kid does that, how do I respond? I mean, I, I call the police and I get an ambulance and yes, it sucks, but I'm not going to kill a kid to cover up my kid's screw up. Well, no, that's something you see once again in a movie, right? The, the evil mom with her hillbilly children, like Mo Mother's Day or Friday the 13th part three or any of these movies like this. Yeah. There was another situation that Willie or Robert, however you want to say it, said that impacted his life. 
So his, we've already mentioned his parents owned this pig farm. Well, one day there was a cow, a calf that young Willie just loved. And he came home from school and this cow wasn't there anymore. And turns out it had been slaughtered and was going to be consumed either by the family or sold as meat. And for me, I grew up on a farm. I had a very similar experience when I was a kid and it hurt, but it wasn't like the end of my life. You well, know he what treated I mean? it like a pet very much. I, my friends on farms, their parents would make them name. Like if you had a pig that you treated like a pet, you would name it pork chop or something. So you wouldn't become attached, but Willie was very attached. I remember on a farm, we had a cow named Molly. And one time I went to my papa's house and I had to feed it clover and stuff because it was not doing well. And the next summer went to my papa's house and I said, I was looking up on the field at all the cattle and I was like, Papa, where's Molly? And I kid you not, we were eating cheeseburgers and Papa said, you're eating Molly, boy. Yes. Oh my God. I didn't go on to be a serial killer though, Chris. (laughs) But by all accounts, Willie was a mama's boy. He spent a lot of time with his mother and trying his best to avoid his dad, who is said to have been abusive. So I think there's a lot of stuff going on in this home that we'll really never fully know about. I think the mom covering up and murdering someone is rough, but I think the abuse from his father played a large role in who he ended up to be. He he wasn't very good in school. He was kind of borderline as far as his IQ goes of, of uh, having a mental handicap, but he was just above that. He was in special ed throughout. In addition to being the stinky kid, he was also not one of the smart kids, very bullied on and off and ended up dropping out of school when he was 15. He moved away from his family at this point and he got a job, but he didn't move away from the family's uh, line of work. He became a butcher or became an apprentice for a butcher And it made sense. He had been around animals being slaughtered all the time, but it unfortunately gave him a set of skills that would serve him with his, with his awful ventures later in life. He worked for that butcher for seven years. So he was in his early twenties when he finally moved back home to help run the pig farm. Once Robert's parents passed away, he and his siblings started selling off some of the small tracts of this land to get some money in. One of the biggest sales of this property came at the price of $2.3 million. They sold that to a local school system there. So really all the kids in this family became millionaires during this time. Wow. But Robert kept a chunk of this land and he did a few things on it. It was about six and a half acres that he kept for himself. And he did so in order to continue the farm pigging or the farm pigging, (laughs) the pig farming business. And on the farm, he continued to live in a really small dilapidated trailer But he constructed a few other buildings like a slaughterhouse, a meat packaging building, and he did all this in hopes to continue selling meat. But he also built a building to host events, and he named the building the Piggy Palace, which is just a great name. (laughs) So basically, he and some of his other rich friends started a nonprofit, and they called it the Piggy Palace Good Times Society which we're going to pitch to you in a minute. That's, yeah, I mean, starting another nonprofit. At the very least, it's a great title for this episode. And once again, we're not laughing because we're laughing at this situation, but just the, the, these names and these scenarios are so ridiculous and, and on, on the outside looking in. Oh, absolutely. Some awful things are yet to come, but at yeah. this point, he's just a crazy guy with a piggy good time society. So. Right. They opened this place up at almost like a 
booster club. They wanted to host events to raise money for local sporting events like sporting teams. I don't know, man. It was, it was just a way to have special events, functions. They did dances, shows, and all of this was said to be a way to raise money for local charities or right. at sporting events. And they did host all these things. And when I think of how crazy this guy is and the fact that it's named the good times, Piggy palace or whatever, I'm thinking this is going to be small events, but some crowds were as large as almost 2000 people showing up to party at this place and have a good time. And there are no records of any money actually being donated to any charities on behalf of this society. So it seems like it was just another money-making scheme that he was able to get away with for a really long time. All right. There are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos, amigas. See, already learning. Haha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW, like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. Okay, I'm going to jump in here. I'm, I'm not saying that this is the God's honest truth, but I am almost convinced that I can recall something about big party in Port Coquitlam involving something like this, a biker group or something along those lines. Because I remember I was there in 94 into 95 New Year's. And one of the thoughts was to go somewhere in Port Quicklam to some kind of a party. I'm not saying it's this one, but it seems a little bit coincidental. There's some kind of a big biker party. It wasn't just a normal party. Like it could be at a piggy palace or something along those lines. But I do remember uh, the fact that there was something going on in Port Quicklam. And you can see in the, in, the, in the Wikipedia, members of the Hell's Angels were known to frequent the farm. So I think I'm 75% sure I've heard of these parties when I was there. I was really hoping you were going to say that you've been there. Yeah, I thought that's where you were going. No, I didn't go. (laughs) I didn't go. I wasn't a big enough name. I was just a lowly uh, wrestler working in Japan at the time. But I did hear something about it for sure. Yeah, that was in the peak of when he was hosting all these parties and the popularity of the place was growing. But then he started using it for a lot of other things that weren't as beneficial or as popular. He started having more and more drugs and alcohol at these parties and bringing in sex workers for himself and his friends. The party started getting more and more out of control. They went from kind of formal, looked like fundraisers in the beginning, but they were raves by the end of it. 
everybody in that town said that they were there. Police officers, the mayor, everybody important had been, been to the Piggy Palace Good Time Society at one time or another. Now, Willie would say that he never drank or used drugs, that he would get everybody else drunk and then take advantage of them, whether that meant sexually or or for money or whatever. But he never drank. He never did drugs. So people thought he was an upstanding guy, which we now know is not the truth. He spent a lot of time going to the East District of Vancouver, where the sex workers usually conducted their business. He would bring a lot of them back to the parties, but he also just took a lot back to his little trailer. He was almost like a celebrity out in there. He would go down and offer food to the people working the streets. He would give them drugs and alcohol and money, earning their trust uh, in hopes of, of course, later taking advantage of them. At some point, local police started to notice that there was a decline in the population of sex workers in that area. And I think now we look back at that and there's this movement of missing and murdering indigenous women and all kinds of groups that are researching this. And I think this is one of those situations where it started. They believed, or at least said they believed, that the workers had moved on to other areas. But now we know that many of them were going missing because they were being killed. It was in 97 when Willie had his first big run in with the police and he almost got caught. And this is that moment. I feel like we get in with every case where police had him in the palm of their hand and let him go. He had picked up a sex worker named Wendy Eistetter and took her back to his house. They did whatever you do with a sex worker and he ended up handcuffing her and then he attacked her with a knife and she believed that he was going to kill her. So she fought back. She was able to escape and get away. She even took the knife and stabbed him in the face. So they both ended up going to the hospital as a result of this. But she reported this to police. And this was the first time that he was called in for any type of, of violent act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, like you said, police would talk to him and he told them that this was a transaction gone wrong. That they had simply gotten to an argument after they slept together. And then she ended up attacking him and running off. And like you said, police had this guy, but they bought his story. And eventually the charges would be dropped from him in regards to the kidnapping and assault. But you mentioned that she went to the hospital and he actually had to go to the same hospital for his wound. And when she got to the hospital, she was still in handcuffs. So the police were able to go to the next room where Willie was being looked at and they got the key from him in order to unlock Wendy's handcuffs. So not only did they have that piece of evidence, but they also kept her clothes as a way to just have evidence. But ultimately, it didn't go anywhere. Which is, once again, like you said, that happens every single case that we talk about. Although this one, you know, it it sucks because it's one word against the other. You know what I mean? And if she's got drug convictions and he doesn't and she's a street worker. Yeah. I guess that's kind of how he's able to play the system, right? Yeah. I think if you're going to choose to pick the word of a at the time, especially a sex worker versus this guy who hosts these parties you've been to, I think you're going to believe him. And that's right. That's what they did. But it was at this time when he got away with this, that there was kind of an increase in him picking up sex workers and taking them back to his trailer. Now, looking back, we know that he started killing them at this point and getting rid of the bodies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes he brought them back and offered them drugs. Sometimes he just brought them back to engage in sex work Uh, He killed him in a a lot of different ways, which isn't really typical of a serial killer. Usually they have an MO, they have a weapon they like to use or a procedure they like to use. For some of his victims, he shot them. For some, he stabbed them. For some, he strangled them. 
And probably the most graphic death that these women suffered was when he would take a syringe, tell them he was injecting them with heroin and inject them with windshield wiper fluid. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We've covered some other cases. Anytime you put any kind of cleaning solution in somebody's body, it does some really painful, awful things on the way to killing them. That's terrible. Yeah. And it was, he had told other people about this, which was eventually what would help get him caught. But once he would kill them, he would proceed to try to hide the evidence by dismembering their bodies. He had been a butcher for seven years. He'd worked on this farm for forever uh, and he put it to work. He would tear the bodies to pieces. Unfortunately, I know that's graphic. And for many of the victims, he would tear them apart and then feed the remains to his pigs. Oh my gosh. It's like something out of Hannibal. It is. And I've seen this on TV shows. I've seen it on an episode of Criminal Minds. This is a way to eliminate evidence. Like the pigs are pretty vicious when they start to feast on flesh and they could even eat some of the bones of the women. So this was a way to really get most of them devoured. And even when they didn't eat them, they would end up getting buried in the mud and that kind of thing. It was actually an efficient way to dispose of the bodies. What we don't know is whether they were all dead when he gave them to the pigs or if he gave any of them over alive to the pig pen after they had been wounded. I would like to think they were dead before they got that because otherwise it would make it even more graphic and painful and, and hard, to, hard to look at. But it's come up a couple times. We, we first came on your show to talk about Nathaniel Barjona. We did an episode on Jeffrey Dahmer. Let's talk about cannibalism. Some people believe that because he used his butchering equipment for these women, and he also used it for his pork, that he may have combined some human meat with the pork when he distributed it to local vendors and sold the meat from his farm. So if it's true, there are people in that area in the mid-90s who consumed pork that contained pieces of human. Now, police said they have no proof of this. But there are a lot of people that believe it actually happened. And that's enough to make me sick. I was never there. You were, though. So I don't know if that bothers you at all. So, so say that again. Just let me just- yeah, he was selling pork anyway. And that's what his business was. But he was also using his equipment to butcher women. So some people think that he left some of the oh my human gosh. flesh in the machines when he was butchering his pigs. So then some of the meat that he sold included would have some human in it, have oh some my human gosh. meat in it. And you'd never know. It's not something you would pick out. I don't think, or nothing. No, you would never know. You would never know. There's no this way. Is coming from, he's not putting labels on this. This isn't today, right? Like he doesn't have to include everything that's in there. So it was, uh, it's possible, but it was denied by, there was no proof of it that, that anybody found. Wow. So towards the end of the 90s, in 1998, police and authorities in that town were hoping to shut down the Piggy Palace Good Time Society, and they were going to do so by using basically zoning laws and violations of zoning laws. So this land was agricultural, but because of his parties and everything that, that he was doing, the concerts and the other things, those were all restricted. So they kind of had what they needed to go in and shut it down. Like Jamie said, there's really no record of how much money that the parties brought in, but but we assume that it was a significant amount when you factor in the drugs and the, the sex thousands workers. Thousands of the people that came through. So Robert and his siblings ignored the pressure, and they decided to throw a massive New Year's Eve party that was going to lead into New Year's Day of 1999. 
before everything Century. came to an end in 2000 and computer shutdown. Yeah. <laughs> or Y2K. And it was at that time that the authorities made good on their threats and officially shut down the Good Time Society. So unknown to, to Willie, the zoning issues were were going on, but police were also looking into him for some of his violent crimes. So it was in September of 98 that due to the pressure from some native people, they, they wanted to investigate all these missing women. And there was not much progress being made to find out what happened. But later in 1998, a tip came in to police that Willie Pinkton's farm should be searched as part of the investigation into the missing women. But police didn't feel like they had enough to go on. But early in 1999, they received a tip that Robert had a freezer and in that freezer was human flesh. Hmm. So the police went to the scene. They asked him if they could go in and search. And this is one of those situations where it's like if I get pulled over and I have marijuana in my car and police say, do you have weed in here? And I say, no, I don't have it. Just check. Maybe police will not even bother. So right. Willie gave them permission to check, but they they didn't go in and check yeah. it. And this is part of the police documentation. They were given permission, but did not search the farm. Wow. So he reversed psychology then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anytime you, anybody who says, yes, I'll take a polygraph, that's usually the test right there, whether you're willing to or not. He passed this one. Right. So if they would have just walked in and found human remains, like the story would have ended there, but it didn't. They didn't go in and check. And, you know, I hate to throw somebody under the bus, but just five minutes of their time could have saved who knows how many lives. And yeah, for sure. That, that officer and how, like, if you know that was your decision and that would weigh on you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Anybody who's listening to this, just Google the name Robert Pickton and see what the guy looks like. like. I mean, come on. You got to do your due diligence. And I mean, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover because we had, you know, Ted Bundy as well. But this guy looks like a freaking creep of all creeps, man. He really does. He looks you know, like he really does. It's as bad as it gets as far as fitting the profile. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if I ran across this guy, I would feel like he's up to no good. I would tell you my know? kids to walk behind me. Yeah. I would lock my doors and move on. Yeah. And if somebody told me, hey, there's a rumor this guy has human flesh in his freaking freezer. And then he said, take a look. I mean, I wouldn't go, okay, he's just kidding. Yeah. Dude, like you're damn right. I'm going to take a look here. Yeah. Thankfully, there was a, a worker that used to work on the farm, Bill Hissicks, and he felt like there was enough suspicious behavior that he needed to report it to police. He didn't have like really hard concrete evidence. It was more of just a lot of circumstantial evidence. Like he knew that there had been several women come and go from the farm. And he also knew that women that have come had been reported missing or that there was at least a lot of women in women in the area that had gone missing. And he felt just really creeped out by Robert. And so he had to just go in and talk to him about it. He also told him that there was a boar, a 600 pound boar that basically patrolled the farm oh and was gosh. very aggressive to strangers. Oh my gosh. 
That's like a, a 600 pound boar that's guarding the farm aggressive to strangers. Like you couldn't write a horror movie more cliched than that. It was like a guard pig. Yeah. I love it. Gosh. I want to get one. Wow. Yeah. 600 pounds, dude. I mean, think about that. That's crazy. That's a big daddy. And they're aggressive sure. as well. So that would, would have been intimidating to anybody. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thankfully, there was another person who worked at the farm, Scott Chubb who was a truck driver for the Picton family, and he informed the Canadian police that he had personally seen illegal drugs in Picton's trailer. And that's really going to be the catalyst to bring in this guy down. Right. Yeah, kind of like Al Capone with the taxes. It was the drugs and the guns that's going to get them into Willie Picton's house. So it was February 6th of 2002 when police finally went to the farm with a search warrant for illegal drugs and firearms. They had gotten this warrant to search the entire property. They were able to justify that by saying, while we're there, we want to look for these missing women. There was a big push in the community for that. So that warrant was granted. And when they started searching the farm, it was pretty evident that the women had been there and they had been killed there. They found several items from the missing women on the farm. Uh, They arrested him on firearm charges at first, but they kept him away from the farm while they did the search. He was arrested again on February 22nd and charged with the murders of Serena Abatwe and Mona Wilson. This was based on their DNA being found at the scene. And actually Serena's asthma inhaler was found at the scene with her name on it from the prescription. And it was after that, that they started just releasing names almost every day on April 2nd, they announced Jacqueline McDonald, Diane rock and Heath bottomly on the 9th. They announced Andrea Josberry and Brenda Wolf in September. They figured out that Georgina Pappen, Patricia Johnson, Helen Hallmark, and Jennifer Furminger had been on the farm and killed October 3rd. Heather Chinook, Tanya Hoylk, Sherry Irving, and Inga Hall. And then in March, they announced the rest of the victims that they'd found. And I like to read the names just to get their stories told and get them out there. It's Kara Ellis, Andrea Borhaven. Deborah Jones, Marnie Frey, Tiffany Drew, Carrie Kosky, Sarah DeVries, Cynthia Felix, Angela Jardine, Wendy Crawford, Diana Melnick, and then there was one victim that was never able to be identified. That brings the total to 27 people that were 27 women that were established by evidence to be found on the farm. Okay. And let me just say, you said Heath Bottomley, just to make it right. Like you said, it's Heather Bottomley, but are they finding bodies here or were all the bodies fed to the pigs? Yeah. So they didn't find any bodies, no full bodies whatsoever. They divided the, it took them two years to search the farm completely. And they divided into a grid and searched it section by section, thoroughly going through, because you had to look in the mud. You had to get the, ground penetrating uh, equipment. The people who were on the scene said that this really uh, reminded them of Ed Gein's house of torture, which inspired the Texas chainsaw massacre, right. rusty equipment everywhere. So the things they found, they found bones uh, that were scattered about. So DNA, they did find some things in the freezer. They found two buckets and in those buckets were a human skull, their hands and their feet. Now, these belong to Serena Abatsway and Andrea Josberry. In addition, they found Serena's inhaler, which I mentioned. Yeah. He had cut the skulls in half and then stuffed the hands and feet inside of the skull and put them in the bucket and then stuffed that in the freezer. Gosh. In just analyzing the area for DNA, they found 80 different DNA profiles on the farm. 
but given the amount of traffic of people that came for the parties, they don't believe that he killed 80 people. Half of these DNA profiles were fit to men anyway, and they don't think he had any male victims, but there were up to 40 women's DNA profiles that were found on the farm. And that's not considering people that he may have killed and not disposed of on the farm or people that were just completely devoured and unable to be found. So the number of victims confirmed and identified was 26, one unidentified and others that they, other potential victims up to 40 found in that search. Wow. And I mentioned it being a high number. That's one of the biggest numbers we've seen out of a Canadian serial killer for sure. This is just the macabre aspect of this with the you know feeding it to the pigs and and i always find when we talk about serial killers that there's killers and the ones that go the shall we say extra mile that's just goes into once again horror movie era it's not somebody killing this is now feeding them chopping them up possibly selling the flesh all these other things like this is deep and deprived now is this just robert or is this his brother david as well involved in this there are people that think that David and even his sister Linda may have known about some of it, but there's no indication that they were involved. Now, David did have a sexual assault charge. I think it was from 1992 uh, where he was given probation after being found guilty of sexual assault. But that's the only crime on his record that we know of. Okay. Here's one other detail John's going to share. This is one of the things I sent you to get you hooked into this episode, Chris. Jamie put this in my section so he didn't have to say it, but some other things that police found in this trailer, one of them was quite interesting. They found a 22 revolver and you're familiar with silencers where you put something over the, the barrel of a weapon. Yeah. This revolver had a dildo over the barrel and police believe that he was using this as some kind of silencer. Oh my gosh. Who knows? I, I mean, like Jamie said, all the evidence from these murders that were found were bones. So you really can't scientifically prove how each person died. So who's to say they weren't shot in yeah. some manner? You know, this guy is sick, so who knows? Well, yeah, who's the, yeah, this is a silencer was using as a dildo and, and fired it, right? I mean, you mentioned if he's going to be using windshield wiper f- fluid to inject, who's to say that he wasn't doing something that that horrific, you know? Crazy. Obviously, this guy is just a psychopath, so who knows? They also found night vision goggles. They found bloody clothes with DNA that matched at least one victim. They found several pairs of handcuffs. They found a syringe with three millimeters of of the blue liquid, and now we know that is windshield wiper fluid. They also found some, some other evidence. They found a videotape or an audio tape that had Scott Chubb on it. This was a friend of Robert or Willie, and they told him in the audio to a good way to kill a heroin addict was to inject them with windshield wiper fluid. So this is kind of more proof that what they found was being used to harm somebody. They found another tape. This time it was a guy named Andrew Bellwood who said that Robert had talked about strangling prostitutes to death and then feeding them to the pigs. And around the property, Jamie already mentioned, they found a variety of body parts. They found bones scattered throughout the whole property some belonging to animals, but many belonging to humans. Some were able to be matched to known victims. Some weren't. A lot of people came forward to tell their story of being approached by or attacked by Robert Picton. There was one lady named Lynn Ellingson, and she had been friends with Robert for a long time. 
And she said that they might have slept together at some point. But one night, she was spending the night at Willie's farm. She woke up in the middle of the night and Robert was gone. So she walked outside and went into the butcher shop. And when she got in there, she found a woman's body hanging on a meat hook. Oh my gosh. Like straight out of a, a horror movie, right? But this is real life. She said that she left and she used the situation. She didn't call it into the police. She instead used this as blackmail for Robert throughout the years. And he never tried to hurt her to keep her quiet. It was just, it seems like he was in love with this woman and probably should have killed her to keep her quiet, but she didn't talk to police about it. She also, he wasn't threatening her. She should be held accountable for knowing about this and not reporting it. But she came forward with this story and it was used to incriminate Willie instead of incriminate herself. All in all, this investigation on the farm cost $70 million to conduct this investigation. What? 70 million because they spent two years on a seven acre farm going through every piece meticulously testing every piece of dna they found they basically had to turn over all this land to see if they could find more bones oh my gosh man think about that okay not only just all of this death and destruction but how much money this guy cost you know i mean it cost taxpayers but i mean 70 million dollars yeah i mean good lord yeah, and how many people had to be called into the scene, police officers, equipment, and all that kind of thing. So a uh, huge undertaking. Just And this is just to get the evidence for prosecution and to try to find answers for where a lot of these missing people were. When it was all said and done, he was charged with 27 counts of first-degree murder. And when he was behind bars, he didn't help himself. They have uh, a video recording of him in a cell bragging about the amount of people he killed. He's told somebody that he had killed 49 people and that he really hopes that he can get out to take one more life to get to the big five of them. Wow. Just sadistic, obviously. And those, he wanted to beat a lot of American serial killer numbers. So he had, he was not only compelled to kill based on like the internal desire we see from a lot of killers, but he was also motivated by, by the actual numbers. I guess when you get that far down the rabbit hole, you know, you might as well just go all the way, right? It's just another person, right? There's no yeah. there's no soul to be attached or whatever. He probably doesn't even see them as people. He probably just sees them as pigs. Yeah. Yeah. And just like his mom pushing that little boy in the in the pond or whatever, everybody's disposable. Yeah. Well, I said there was a video of this, and there was a video of this confession because this was an undercover RCMP officer in his cell that he confessed to. So he completely sold himself down the river. Uh, the details were brought to court finally in January of 2006, and he pled not guilty to all 27 counts. Now, the judge, Justice James Williams, had to organize this in some way. So he dropped one of the charges due to a lack of evidence and then started categorizing the rest of them. We've we've discussed a lot of cases where, th where there are many victims. It's tough tough to have a trial where you focus on the evidence for each victim individually for the jury to keep up with it and for the length of time it takes. So by the time the judge and the prosecutors worked on this, they talked about how much money it would cost to have a trial for 26 murders. They decided they had six cases that stood out as the strongest. They decided to just prosecute those six to leave the other 20 open to possibly prosecute later, but they didn't feel like it was worth the unreasonable burden on the jury and on the crown, which is 
Canadian government prosecution and on the city's budget to prosecute for all 26. But the budget was okay to spend 70 million. Like this is just the bureaucracy is just ridiculous. Maybe after the 70 million, they were like, no more. I don't know. But that means that 20 of these people aren't really getting justice or even getting their trial heard. No, they made the, the six they moved forward with were Serena Botsway, Mona Wilson, Andrea Josberry, Brenda Wolf, Marnie Frey, and Georgina Pappen. The actual trial began in January 2007, which was almost five years after he was arrested and 10 years after he was first reported to police for violence. So it's been a long time coming. In 2007, it looks like we're going to get justice. All right, so I'm like 10 and 0 when it comes to snagging the last delicious factor meal in my house before the new weekly delivery arrives. We all love factors ready to eat meals here in the Jericho household. They're fresh, never frozen, chef crafted and dietitian approved. And best of all, they're ready to eat in just two minutes. Eating better has never been easier or more delicious. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus and keto. So before I jumped on the plane to get the dynamite this week to wrestle Atlantis Jr., I had grilled steakhouse filet mignon with Parmesan cream, spinach and broccolini. Two minutes to heat it up, ate it right out of the factory container, and then tossed it in the garbage. Fast, easy, and delicious. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. You can fuel up with Factor's restaurant-quality meals, too. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. You can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime, and Factor is less expensive than takeout. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash TIJ50. And use code TIJ50 to get 50% off. That's code TIJ50 at factormeals.com slash TIJ50 to get 50% off. Let me ask you a question. All of these women, you know, and they're all women, are in their you know 20s yep. to you know mid-30s, some early 40s. Were they all prostitutes or was, that, was he getting them all off the streets? Not all of them, but the vast majority. I don't have the number in front of me. But it's almost like a Jack the Ripper type thing where you would think these girls would be starting to freak out over all of them disappearing. Yeah, that was why he would visit the area they worked in and he was giving them drugs and food and he earned the trust of everybody. Gotcha. So, so to them, he was the guy that was on their side not understanding that he was the guy that was also killing the people that they that they were around. So it he, tells you he's kind of intelligent. It was strategic. He's, he's at least thinking about this in my mind. The trial itself went pretty much as expected. There was a small hiccup where it was alleged that one of the jurors kind of already had her mind made up, but that juror had to have a talk with the judge and the judge allowed the trial to proceed. Now that did come up in an appeal, but I mean, it's kind of a moot point, but deliberations took place on December 6th of 2007. The trial itself took 11 months. And to me, that is insane. Yeah. Like this is for six of the victims. Like if we would have heard testimony from every possible woman who was murdered by this guy, it could have easily taken three to five years for this trial to to go on. Yeah, I think that's bad courtroom management instead of just it taking too long. I can, it's unbelievable that it took as long as it did. Maybe they did that just to justify not prosecuting the other 20. Well, you think it should have taken two days to figure it out, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. It was so overwhelming. What's to take so long? And I could have done it for like 10 million. I mean, yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. They returned a verdict on December 9th, but it was a verdict of not guilty for the sixth first degree murder charges. 
but they did find him guilty of six counts of second degree murder. So second degree murder is homicide that is committed intentionally, but is not premeditated or planned. Personally, I disagree with that. I feel like this guy was thinking ahead. Of course he was. He was, he was building trust. Them. He was grooming them. I would have felt fine with first degree murder. And the issue there, the only real difference is that if it's first degree murder, you're automatically not eligible for parole for 25 years. If it's second degree, it can be anywhere between 10 and 25. So it's up to the judge's discretion for the actual sentence. But I can't wrap my mind around why they went with second degree instead of first degree. And the judge did go with the maximum allowed. He went with the 25 years to be eligible for parole with life in prison. And he made it clear that the sentence would have been the same if he was convicted for first degree murder. So in the scheme of things, there's really not a difference in how much time he was sentenced to. It's one of those things I'm just looking right now. I didn't even realize that the fucking guy's still alive. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, how do you be convicted of six murders, charged with 26, confess to 49 and still be allowed to, to live? You know what I mean? It just makes no sense to me whatsoever. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you about that because this is specific to like it's like this in Canada, the UK and Australia where everybody's eligible for parole after 25 years, no matter what they did. In America, it's very much done by state. Some states have life sentence without parole. Other states will make the charges consecutive, meaning back to back to back. So if convicted of six murders, six consecutive life sentences is 240 years if they're 40 years each. But as trickled down from England and in, in their system, it's 25 years. You grew up in Canada, lived all over the world and are here for a while. What are your thoughts on the Canadian practice of the maximum sentence without parole being 25 years? Why would you even mess with it? I mean, we've talked about this before with my experience with the serial killer with Rob Chalk and about how they did let him out. And then what did he do? He went and killed two more other people. Yeah. And it's like dude that never should have happened ever and you and we we hear these types of things quite often where this guy did all these things chopped them up possibly sodomized them with a dildo gun windshield wiper fluid and you're gonna show mercy oh he turned his life around i'm sorry dude that window closes the moment you kill somebody over and over and over and over again listen if you are drunk driving and accidentally kill somebody with your car and then turn your life around Okay, our self-defense, that's fine. This is not that case. This is a bad seed, bad apple who should not be on this planet. He's 74 years old right now. He was arrested in 2002. So he would be eligible for parole in 2027. So in four years, he would be... Now, that's eligible for parole. The parole rate of people with a life sentence is 20% on their in their first appeal for parole. So it's unlikely he would be paroled, but I could also see somebody taking mercy on him because he's going to be near 80 and a decrepit old man. But I, like you, I don't think he should ever be paroled. Well, I mean, yeah, and sometimes Canada and the Commonwealth and all this stuff, like, listen, I'm Canadian, but I don't agree with the way that some of those things work. And obviously this one is just absolutely ridiculous, you know? He filed a series of appeals trying to say that the judge didn't follow the right practices. The juror that John mentioned earlier should have been thrown out, but nobody really batted an eye at any of his appeals. His appeals even made it to the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, they allowed him to present, quote unquote, new evidence, but he really didn't have anything of quality to show. So 
His uh, his appeals are all out, and he will be in prison at least for four more years, hopefully for much, much longer. And that's if he even lasts the next four years. Where does this kind of fall within Canadian serial killer? Is this kind of the worst? I mean, I'm not up to date in my Canadian serial killers. Yeah, based on what I can find, the, the number, if if it goes up to 49, like he suggests, then it absolutely would be in the mid-20 is where we is the minimum at this point. He's probably still up in the top five as far as numbers of people. Uh, he targeted the same area for decades. So the his impact on the population, specifically that population of women in Canada that has gone missing over and over again over the years and is just now getting that attention, his impact on a particular population in a particular area was definitely the most. You know who's living large at my house? My three cats, Mr. Mittens, Indy, and Snickers. And you know why? Because we switched them to Pretty Litter. Okay, so it's really me and my wife and my daughters who are living large, thanks to Pretty Litter. Because Pretty Litter's ultra-absorbent crystals trap odor instantly, so no more bad cat smells in the bathroom. Pretty Litter crystals last up to a month, so less cat litter box cleaning for all of us. And less fighting about whose turn it is to clean the litter box. I got to deal with this fight every single week between my daughters. This makes it so much easier. Pretty Litter also ships right to our front door. So no more last minute mad scramble runs to the store because we're out of kitty litter. And Pretty Litter has another cool feature that makes life just a little easier. It helps us keep tabs on our cat's health. It changes colors so you can monitor early signs of potential illnesses like urinary tract infections and kidney issues. It's easily the best thing we've done for ourselves and our cats in a very long time. Like I said, Pretty Litter helps keep tabs on my cat's health and keeps odors down. Those are two big wins in my house, meow. You and your cat are going to love Pretty Litter as much as we do. So go to prettylitter.com slash Jericho and use code Jericho to save 20% on your first order. That's prettylitter.com slash Jericho. Code Jericho to save 20%. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Just looking here at a couple final things on, on the Wikipedia. They're talking about the management review of investigation that in 2010, you guys might have this written down in yeah. your notes, but we'll, let's get into it then. Yeah. So in 2010, there was an order for an inquiry ordered by the Crown to assess the investigation and to talk about these crimes committed by Robert. And the inquiry said that there were, quote, blatant failures, end quote, by police. Duh. And it included inept criminal investigative work compounded by police and societal prejudice against sex trade workers and indigenous women. And it led to a tragedy of epic proportions. Well, of course, That's hindsight right. is twenty twenty. Sure. But basically, I mean, to put it in layman's terms, the police didn't do a good job. They might have been biased against the sex trade workers. Like you mentioned, at the hospital, it's Robert Picton versus this woman who obviously has drug addiction, is homeless, is a sex worker. So they chose to take his word over hers. And had they investigated it further, who knows? We probably wouldn't even be talking today. But as a direct result of this inquiry, there were 63 recommendations that were made in order to hopefully help the police procedures move forward. There was also a recommendation to build more shelters for sex workers and also to provide compensation for Picton's victims, like the children of his victims, to be awarded compensation from the government. Yeah, and I saw they got $50,000 or whatever it was yeah. per child, right? Which is nothing. Well, yeah, especially when they spent $70 million for 
for all of this, you know, which is so ridiculous. What else you guys got about Robert Picton? Yeah. So the, the, when they questioned the Vancouver police department about this, the chief said that he wished from the bottom of his heart, they caught him sooner. Obviously like he made this public apology, but it doesn't do anything now. So that police department, most of the murders happened in the nineties. We're in 2023. The police department's still under scrutiny because of this case and it won't go away in the media. That happened in 2010 and 2015 was when his brother David's victim uh, filed a civil suit against David for a sexual assault that happened back in 92. Uh, at the time, like I said, he only got probation, but she won 45,000. So that brought their name back up in the media as well. 2006, Picton tried to release a book out of prison. He supposedly hand wrote a book and smuggled it out of prison and somebody put it on Amazon. It was called Picton in his own words. But as soon as people figured it out, that was allegedly taken away. So that was kind of the the last time we saw his name in the news. But in 2027, we may see his name again uh, as he's coming up for parole. I really hope that doesn't happen. I assume there will be an outcry if he gets a parole hearing. At least I hope there will be. But hopefully Willie Pickton's seen his last days outside of a jail cell. I know what you guys are going to say, but how do you feel about the concept of a, of a killer writing a book about his experiences and then trying to publish it? Well, I would hope that the courts would at least order that he's not able to physically profit from that book. Yeah. But if it is released, I would hope that the courts would step in and say, okay, any and all profits go to your victim's family members so that you don't see a dime of this. But honestly, I, I just wish that all the information we had was from the investigation. I don't want to hear anything from this guy. We were talking about R. Kelly earlier today on our show, and that's what has been done for him. Any of his music that's streaming, that money goes to the families of the victims. So if that's the case uh, with this book, Okay, but I also just don't want him to get his voice out. There. I feel like he would see that as a victory, and I don't want him to have that. And I think serial killers often embellish what they've done, and well, yeah. So it's possible that it lets them relive it. Yeah, there's, there's there's great ego in there. You know, there's there's a great form of arrogance um, that you're better and smarter than than even God in a lot of those cases. And to me, it's like I would not listen. There's a lot of crazy people who want to buy artifacts of all these guys. And there would probably be a lot of people that would read that. I don't know why you would ever want to read that and, and listen to somebody's views on killing another human being. Cause it's all fine and dandy until you're sitting in that chair, getting injected with windshield wiper fluid going, what the f did I think this guy was cool for in the first place? You know? Yeah. I, I completely agree with you there. I think his voice has been heard through his crimes and I wouldn't give him another piece of acknowledgement whatsoever. Yeah. And when, once again, you know, I assume he's probably telling the truth because if he wanted 50, he could just lie and say 50. So if there's 49 confessed, let's hope, like you said, he never, he never gets the light of day to Absolutely. be an old man killer, which we've seen that happen quite a few times before as well. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think he, I think he's still a danger to society. So there may be an age where he's not any longer, but I don't think I don't ever, know what that ever is. Yeah. It's it, mentally, he can sit in a wheelchair and stab somebody with a needle full of fluid. You know absolutely. what I mean? It's easy yeah. to do. Last question for you. Is this one of the worst that, that you've discussed that we've discussed? Jamie and I have been doing this podcast for six years and I'll never forget this one. It, it's almost sad that we do at least two cases a week and there are times where it's just kind of a typical thing we talk about and I'll forget about it, but I will never forget 
the good times, Piggy Palace and Robert Picton. Yeah, I, I think the objectifying of the bodies after their murders, even other people would go and sexually assault the bodies after they killed them. Other people would dissect or, or try to eat the bodies. But the butchering process, the feeding to the pigs, the disregard for life whatsoever, I think he is just as evil as anybody else that that we have covered based on his treatment of that group, the trouble he went to to groom them. Yeah, I, w- I would put him up there, maybe even as number one, as far as the evil intent and the actual impact made through his crimes. And just the bizarreness of feeding them to the yeah. pigs on his farm and all that sort of stuff too, right? Yeah, very, very unique set of circumstances. And even if he just got to the number of 27 that we know he got to, that's that's way too long. And he was smart enough to, to get away with it for so long and to slip through police's fingers several times. So definitely one of the worst, most evil people we've seen. And Hoping he stays in prison. Well, like you said, exactly. Let's hope he stays in prison. And and this is sad as it sounds. I'm sure there's going to be plenty more of these stories to talk about, as there always is, unfortunately. But it's always great to talk to you guys and kind of run through some of these things. Probably won't be eating a lot of pork tonight uh, as a result. (laughs) I I need you to. I I am having pork chops tonight. (laughs) Okay. I need you to go back and track down and see if you can find information about on that party you were invited to in 94. But I, but I wasn't invited to it. I just knew that something was going on in Coquitlam because my aunt lived there. Okay. And yeah. something about weird party in Coquitlam on New Year's. It might have been a not this one, but let's say for the sake of this show that it was. Had circumstances been different, I might have went to that party yeah, and, ha- and had a, a beer with Robert Picton. Yeah, I think we have to assume that that was the party in that town. Yeah, and that would have happened. That would have been two serial killers we have documented that you hung out with. So I know kind of the common denominator. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe it's not a coincidence, right? Yep. So, nope. Chris, thanks for having us. Always a pleasure to come on and talk about these stories. Thanks, guys. I look forward to uh, the next tale of uh, macabre that you guys come up with. There's no shortage of crime, so we're good. <laughs> I know for sure. Thanks. Great talking to you guys. We'll t- we'll talk to you next time. Yep. See you, Chris. Cheers.